Welcome, everyone, to the True Crime Breakdown. I'm your host, Sean. In today's episode, we will be wrapping up the case of District Attorney Ray Griegaard's disappearance. But first, some housekeeping. I want to send out a huge thank you to everyone that emailed me regarding the last episode. I love all the comments and suggestions. Please keep them coming. I want this podcast to be as listener interactive as possible. And with that in mind, if you would like to contact me regarding the show or to just say hi, my email is mail at truecrimebreakdown.com. Please follow me on Twitter to get the latest news and show drops at TCBD Podcast. My Instagram is truecrimebreakdown, and you can find show notes, research links, and episode photos at my website at truecrimebreakdown.com. I usually update the website the day after the episode drops. Last but not least, if you enjoy my podcast, please tell a friend. So without further ado, let's start the breakdown. In our last episode, we detailed how District Attorney Ray Greekar disappeared from Center County, Pennsylvania on the 15th of April in 2005. Ray had left such a small amount of evidence behind that his trail grew cold quickly. Even with involvement from four local police jurisdictions, the state police and the FBI, by the fall of 2008, it was effectively considered a cold case. That means that no one in law enforcement would work the case unless new evidence was discovered. Law enforcement fell into one of three camps regarding what had happened to Ray. The first group believed that Ray, depressed over his brother's suicide and his own impending retirement, had committed suicide. He jumped off the bridge over the Susquehanna River. The second group felt that Ray was a victim of foul play, possibly relating to past cases he had prosecuted while he was the district attorney. And the last group was convinced that Ray, for reasons unknown, had simply walked away to start a new life. As I mentioned in the prior episode, I am convinced that Ray walked away from his life of his own accord and did this for a number of reasons. I think he wanted to escape the social and legal fallout regarding his failure to prosecute Jerry Sandusky in 1998 and the continuing guilt that this had caused him in later years. I also think that by leaving when he did, Ray felt he would be able to secure a more stable future for his girlfriend, Patty Fornicola, and his daughter, Lara. Now let's think about it for a minute. If Ray had not disappeared in 2005 and had stayed the DA of Center County, then when that case against Sandusky eventually exploded in 2008, one of the first questions the public would have asked is, why hadn't Ray prosecuted Sandusky when he had the chance back in 1998? Detective Schaefer had handed him Sandusky's head on a silver platter after all. How much would Ray and those close to him have suffered if he had chosen to stay? All we have to do is look at those who were involved that didn't disappear for an indication of how bad it could have gotten for Ray. Sandusky himself was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Coach Paterno was fired in disgrace, even having his statue outside of the Penn State football stadium torn down. He only escaped prison time by testifying for the prosecution against Sandusky. The Penn State president, athletic director, and VP of finance were all fired and also testified for the prosecution. If Ray had stayed, there is the very real possibility that these men could have tried to make him their scapegoat, blaming Ray for not stopping Sandusky 10 years earlier. You see, Paterno and the Penn State administration had a great deal of power in Center County. Ray could have never been elected the five times he was without their backing. I don't have any clear evidence that Ray was totally in their pocket, but that secret meeting at Penn State right before Ray declined to press charges tells me Paterno and his friends did have some level of influence over him. Regardless, if the story came out that Ray had declined to prosecute Sandusky 
At the minimum, he would have been fired and vilified in the press. This would also have impacted Patty, since she worked for Ray at the courthouse as his clerk. And being an elected official, Ray may have also had to face legal charges regarding his decisions. His idyllic life in Center County would be over. Even if he moved away, the news media would have ensured that his past followed him. And as we all know, someone's past is only a Google search away. I think that after Ray declined to prosecute, he was still hearing rumors about Sandusky's continued inappropriate actions as the years progressed. Around the Penn State campus, it was something of an open secret that Sandusky did not stop his abuse in the years before his arrest. In fact, he stepped up his abuse and, when finally stopped, had admittedly molested over 50 young boys. Imagine how this would make you feel as a person, to know that you had the chance to stop this monster, but didn't. This is the type of decision that would haunt someone, with the feeling of regret and guilt only building over time. Imagine sitting in your office, in the courthouse, and every few months you hear that Sandusky is still up to his old tricks. You can't prosecute now because to do so would reveal your earlier failure, and questions would arise about your connections with Penn State. Ray's job as county DA is an elected position. Every four years, he had to face the voters, so he always had to appear squeaky clean. So the whole time that you were ignoring new allegations about Sandusky, you know that sooner or later, that other shoe is going to drop. The stress must have been tremendous. But then it hits you. There maybe is a way out of this nightmare after all. What if you could just disappear? Ray is no dummy. He knows that if you were to leave, it would have to be done right, in such a way where his disappearance could be considered a suicide. But that's tricky. It's hard to convince the authorities a suicide took place without a body. He would need to somehow cast doubt over his whole disappearance, but still leave enough evidence to point towards suicide without giving away his true motive. This way, when the proverbial second shoe does hit, he will be long gone. After all, the press can't very well interview someone who isn't there. By then, Ray Gricar would be old news. So how does he do it? Well, it just so happens that Ray has a step-by-step guide on how to stage a suicide. He needs to look no further than his brother Roy's own successful suicide in 1996. As we learned in part one, Ray's older brother Roy was found in an Ohio River after he jumped off an overhanging bridge. This is a case about which Ray knows every detail. He knows just what kind of scene to stage to make his suicide appear legitimate. And that's not all. He also had a good idea about what not to do when staging a crime scene. You see, some of Ray's friends came forward after his disappearance, and they reported to law enforcement that Ray was fascinated by the case of Ohio Police Chief Mel Wiley. Now, Mel Wiley was a police chief in Ohio that disappeared in 1985. Wiley's locked car was found by park rangers on July 30th in Edgewater Park, alongside Lake Erie, in a picnic area. Park rangers staked out the abandoned car for 24 hours, and when no one showed up to claim it, they broke in. What they found inside was Wiley's beach towel, a set of clothes, his wallet with credit cards and cash, his police badge, and his keys, all stacked neatly in a pile on the passenger seat. Law enforcement immediately secured the scene and had the Coast Guard search the lake. But they found no signs of foul play and no signs of Wiley. At first, investigators thought the 47-year-old had gone for a swim and accidentally drowned or possibly committed suicide. Days passed 
and when nobody washed ashore, investigators began to think that maybe the crime scene had been staged. One such person was Wiley's close friend, Police Chief Bigham of neighboring Medina, Ohio. Now, Bigham was convinced that Wiley had been pulling a scam, so he began his own investigation. He found a typewriter ribbon cartridge in Wiley's office, and when they analyzed it, it was shown to contain the imprint of a letter that Wiley had written to a woman just two days before his disappearance. In the letter, Wiley wrote, Nothing in my life has worked out or was ever going to work out, and by the time you read this letter, I will have put 2,500 miles between myself and Ohio. With this evidence, investigators were now convinced that Wiley had faked his own death, and they continued to investigate. But with little new evidence and no leads, they eventually stopped their search. And to date, Mel Wiley has not been found. I think this story helped to convince Ray that if he creates just the right crime scene and can disappear and stay hidden, he might get away with it. Now, there are a couple of other interesting things I found while researching this case that may have played into Ray's mindset at the time. Back in 1990, Ray consulted as a law enforcement expert on a book entitled 2020 Vision, written by Pamela West. The basic premise of the book was that the main character used time travel to solve a past crime that takes place on April 15th. Now, this is the same day and month that Ray would eventually disappear. The character in the book also fakes his own death. After Ray disappeared, the author came forward and stated to law enforcement that she thought the similarities seemed eerie. One other thing is that when Ray bought his Mini Cooper, he put it in the name of his girlfriend, Patty. Now, Patty had her own car, and Ray was the only one that drove the Mini. There was no reason to put the car in Patty's name. He bought the car just nine months before he disappeared. If you have decided to leave and start a brand new life, how would you do it? Well, first you need a plan, and not just for your getaway, but also for those you leave behind. You would have to start planning your escape years in advance. If you were to just up and leave one day, you effectively screw over everyone you left. Because without a body, law enforcement will not think it is a suicide. All of your assets will be frozen. Bank accounts, homes, cars, even your retirement. Everything would remain in limbo until a court officially declares you dead. And the courts will never do that if there's the slightest chance law enforcement is still investigating your case. Now, Ray knew this. He knew what it would take to make it look like a suicide, and even without a body, so law enforcement would be convinced that suicide was the most likely outcome. And this is why Ray went to such lengths to copy step-by-step the way his brother killed himself. This gives investigators an obvious path to follow in the direction that Ray wants. Now Ray has a plan to create a crime scene that will point everyone towards suicide. Well, what's next? Money. You need cash. And lots of it. You need to be able to walk away and never look back. No old friends, no contacts, and especially no financial traces, like credit cards or bank transfers. As a district attorney, Ray knew that the first thing law enforcement was going to do is look at his bank accounts. And that is what they did. But the FBI found nothing. The only thing that seemed out of place is that for a lifelong well-paid district attorney, 200 days from retirement, Ray only had $100,000 in his savings. That was it. No other financial assets. Why this amount seems so low to investigators is that Ray had been making an annual salary of over $125,000 for years. The county paid for his car and his car insurance. They also covered his health insurance, and he owed zero alimony and no child support. He lived with his girlfriend, Patty, and they shared the rent on the apartment. He did not have extravagant tastes, and he only went out to dinner one night a week. 
At the time of his disappearance, by my rough calculations, Ray should have had somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred to 400000 in his bank account. What I think Ray did was that starting years prior to his leaving, Ray would stash money away from each paycheck, building up a cash nest egg over time that he could use when he left. So now Ray has his crime scene scenario and his getaway money. So where does he go when he vanishes? Well, he has to do research on places, transportation, extradition agreements, just in case he does get caught, and ways to stay off the grid. He also needs to maintain an email correspondence with that dark-haired woman who will assist him in the final stage of his getaway. Ray knew he could not just walk into his local public library and start spending hours doing research. That would have seemed odd. He had to use his computer, but not the home computer he shared with Patty. That was too risky. His plans might be discovered there. No, his only choice was his county-issued laptop. That way, he could control who had access to it and decide exactly what happened to the information it contained after he left. Remember last episode, when we learned the great links that Ray went to destroy the information on that laptop? He not only scrambled the data using software, he went as far as to remove the hard drive and throw it and the laptop into the river. Now we know why he did such a thorough job deleting the data, so that not even NASA could recover it. He was hiding all digital traces of his new life. If that laptop was the way that he set up his escape, then utterly destroying it makes complete sense. Well, all right, Ray. Congratulations. You did it. You planned and executed your escape almost perfectly. You even acted a little depressed in the weeks leading up to your escape. Enough so that Patty noticed and had even mentioned it to her co-workers. Now, most of them just chalked it up to an increasing caseload before your retirement. But I think that maybe some of that depression was real. You were leaving a pretty good life behind, after all. So with everything in place on February, April 15th, Ray tells Patty he's taking the day off, knowing full well that she would go into work, thereby leaving him alone to drive the 50 miles to Lewisburg. He even called her and laid out exactly where his car would be found, in that lot next to the Susquehanna River. He parked, took the hard drive out of his laptop, walked over to the bridge, and threw both into the river. He then returned to his car to wait for the dark-haired woman to show up. And when she does, she leans into the passenger side window, takes a drag from her cigarette, which causes a small amount of ash to fall into the car. She exhales and tells Ray, it's time to go. Ray turns off his phone, throws it on the seat next to him, and locks his car. Then together, they walk through the antique mall and across the street to where her car is parked. And they drive off, never to be seen or heard from again. Well, what do you think? Is this how it happened? Uh, Maybe. We will probably never know for sure. But I think it is the most probable solution, given the facts. And hey, Ray, if you're out there listening, please email me at mail at truecrimebreakdown.com. I would love to hear from you. Please subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Now, next week's episode also contains a disappearance, but in a much different way. It's a really intriguing mystery, and I hope you will join me so that we can break it down together.
Thank you.